We went to Aguilares, where, at 11.30, we celebrated Mass for the soul of Father Rutilio Grande on the third anniversary of his death. I noticed the absence of many of the people of Aguilares, for the church was only half-filled, and I could tell that the majority of them were communities that had come from elsewhere. This shows that the military repression in a zone that has suffered so much is having the desired effect of terrorizing the people and of distancing them from those who can help them in their awareness and organization. I use the opportunity to preach about this very thing, using the scripture reading that speaks to us about Christ reconciling the world through his death and his blood, of how the mystery of our church asks us to sacrifice in the way that Father Grande was asked, and for us to make an effort for the integral liberation of our people without being afraid of anything happening. That was an excerpt from the March 16, 1980 entry in the Diary of St. Oscar Romero, translated by Dr. Irene Hodgson. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you may be. We're back with an episode about Jesuit priest and martyr Juan Ramon Moreno's chapter on evangelization in Mysterium Liberationis. And let me give some background information on our author. Born in Biatuerta, Spain in 1933, Moreno entered the Jesuits in 1950 in Spain, but shortly thereafter was sent to Santa Tecla, El Salvador, to complete his novitiate. Curiously, Moreno's priestly ordination was in Kansas in 1964, since he did his theology studies here in the United States at St. Louis University. He developed an interest in the spirituality of St. Ignatius of Loyola, one of the founders of the Jesuits, and so he established a center of Ignatian spirituality in Panama in 1976. However, he ended up moving this center to Managua, Nicaragua in 1980, which is just one year after the triumph of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. He was an eager participant in the Sandinistas' literacy campaign, which, in five short months, reduced the illiteracy rate from 50.35% to 12.96%. In 1985, Moreno returned to El Salvador to teach theology, organize the library at the university's Theological Reflection Center, and assist the leader of the Jesuits of the Central American region. Alongside five Jesuit brothers and two lay companions, Father Moreno was executed on November 16, 1989. It was while staying in the former room of Juan Ramon at the Central American University that I felt inspired to begin this podcast on Latin American liberation theology, and so this episode is special to me. This room's window the room where I stayed, where Juan Ramon had also stayed, it overlooks the lawn, now a rose garden, on which the Jesuits were shot. I hope you enjoy his insights into this important topic of evangelization. To evangelize means to share good news. But what's the origin of this good news? What's its content? Who's its messenger? 
Who's its recipient? And what are the relations between these facets? Moreno sets out to respond to these questions throughout the essay, but first he notes the relevance of the topic. In 1974, the Catholic Church held a synod in Rome to discuss evangelization. Interestingly, Cardinal Karl Wojtyla, later Pope John Paul II, and Archbishop Joseph Bernardine, later Cardinal Bernardine of Chicago, were general rapporteurs at this synod. Pope Paul VI incorporated recommendations from this synod into his apostolic exhortation Evangelii Nunciandi, published in 1975. There, the Pope writes, quote, Evangelizing is in fact the grace and vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity. She exists in order to evangelize, end quote. It's clear that then, if evangelization is the most profound vocation of the church, a lot rides on how evangelization is understood. But evangelization was not only an important subject for Rome. It also features prominently in the Latin American Bishop's Puebla document from 1979, in which the word evangelization appears an astounding 231 times, and that excluding the variations of the word like evangelizing and evangelical. The bishops at Puebla recognize in that document that the, quote, shadows of alliances with earthly powers, incomplete pastoral visions, and the destructive power of sin have accompanied the evangelization of the Latin American continent. Or put more boldly and bluntly, the church has both actively and passively participated in the evils of the colonization and enslavement of native peoples. In this way, the church has been bad news to the poor of Latin America. But the gospel is meant to be good news to the poor. And the bishops write there that, quote, the poor deserve preferential attention, whatever their moral or personal situation might be. Made in the image and likeness of God to be God's children, this image is obstructed and even ridiculed. Because of this, God defends them and loves them. As such, the evangelization of the poor is, par excellence, sign and proof of Jesus' mission. End quote. Here they are referring to Matthew 11, where from prison, John the Baptist sends his followers to ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. Jesus tells them, quote, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Quote. In other words, the very sign of messianic activity, per Jesus himself, is the bringing of the suffering poor into physical well being. Jesus sums it up a few lines later quote, Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. End quote. So, as Moreno writes, quote, it's by looking to Jesus that the church learns to be evangelical, end quote. We can discover the meaning of evangelization by studying the Gospels to see how Jesus acts and how Jesus encourages us to act. Jesus is the good news incarnate. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. In Jesus, we can contemplate the work of God. Yet evangelization proves to be a challenge in the modern world, and Moreno suggests that this difficulty may have more to do with the church than with the world. In the 19th century, while bishops were debating whether the Pope is infallible and whether it's possible to prove God's existence by reason alone, allegedly Christian Europe was colonizing Africa. 
long before Catholic social teaching emerged. Communists were already organizing workers around the world, and instead of collaborating with communists to advance labor's struggle, the church chose to compete. There's no doubt that atheism, materialism, and intra-Christian division have made it harder to share the love of Jesus Christ in the modern world. But for many of Latin America's poor, abstract questions of whether one can prove that God exists by reason alone and whether the Pope is infallible take a backseat to the immediate questions of food, water, health, and housing. Each of these issues with rotten roots in an imperialist capitalist system. After Moreno problematizes the problem of secularization, he begins to do what he told us he would, look to Jesus to unearth the true sense of evangelization. He breaks open Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan and asks, quote, who was good news to the wounded, end quote. The priest and the Levite are not good news. They pass by an injured man, whether from a religious taboo from busyness or from a selfishness similar to Cain's in Genesis when he says, Am I my brother's keeper? However, the Samaritan is good news to the dying. The Samaritan goes through a three-step process in order to become good news for this dying person. First, he sees the man left for dead. Second, he is moved with compassion. Third, he takes action. In order for the Samaritan to see the wounded, he had to come near him. Proximity is often necessary for a human response to the suffering of others. We have to draw near suffering people for the second step to even occur, which is to feel compassion. As the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas says, the face of the suffering other signifies, do not kill me. The Samaritan was close enough to the wounded to look at his face to feel pity, and to act. Moreno writes, quote, Solidarity with another leads him to identify with the suffering one in such a way that his pain, his passion, become his own compassion, and in such a way that they become intolerable. One has to alleviate them. One has to do something to change the situation of suffering, end quote. It's interesting to compare the compassionate responses of the Good Samaritan and Jesus when faced with needy others. In the former case, St. Luke reports, quote, Gazing at him, he loved him and said to him, end quote. In the latter, St. Matthew states, quote, Jesus saw the crowds, felt compassion for them, and healed the sick, end quote. Together, these stories speak of the importance of both personal care and social consciousness in the life of the Christian. The Good Samaritan gives a single wounded man tender care. Jesus, on the other hand, feels compassion for the masses, in Greek, oklos, which means the common people, the mob, the riffraff, as opposed to the rulers, the wealthy, the great. The crowds come to Jesus to be liberated from their physical suffering. They sense that Jesus has the power to change things, to make them new. And Jesus responds to their injuries with a love that heals. As I was reading Moreno, I thought of a few personal memories. The first one, some of y'all may be familiar with the fact that I was adopted. I was adopted at birth 
by my mother and father. My birth mother had a teenage pregnancy, an unexpected teenage pregnancy, and so through Catholic Charities, I was uh, adopted by my mom and dad, Colleen and Dale. And I had a wonderful childhood, and later through Catholic Charities, my brother and sister would also be adopted into our family. And because of these adoptions through Catholic Charities, I've always felt a special relationship to Catholic Charities. And as I was growing up and all the way through college, I would volunteer at Catholic Charities and try to give back for the fact that I was placed with this wonderful family through them. So I remember there was one occasion where it was over the summer, we were preparing backpacks for children who might not be able to afford backpacks or school supplies. And so I was with my mother, we were on this assembly line, and afterwards I was just kind of casually asking her, what uh, what were you thinking about as we were packing these backpacks? And she said, well, I was thinking about each of the children who would receive them and the smile on their face. And I said a little prayer for each one. And I think of this memory in relation to what we were just talking about. I think we see the Good Samaritan offers a tender love for the individual person. And I think that my mother gave witness to that tender love in that moment and in her personal care for me and her personal care for each of those children. So it was a tiny moment, but I will never forget that while I was thinking about God knows what, my mother was quietly praying and interceding for each of the children who would receive a backpack. Then in Joliet, the Catholic Charities also has a, what they call the Daybreak Center, which is a shelter for the homeless. And on the wall of that Daybreak Center is a quote from the Bible, and in fact from uh, Zechariah's prayer, and it's, quote, In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace, end quote. And I do, I remember coming in to that center and looking at that quote and looking at the people who were in that center and thinking about how God has a tender compassion for each person in that room. The difficulties aside, God loves each of those people and shows mercy to each of those people, and that the church could be a vehicle through which God could show God's mercy in offering shelter and clothing and food for those who need it, responding to the immediate needs of people. And then in between my first and second years of college, I went to Guatemala. This was a revolutionary experience in my life. It's where I met liberation theology. And I remember that we went, uh, we took a truck up to a community that was very far away from where I was living. We might have traveled four or five hours through the mountains in order to get to this location. And we were going to have a workshop with some youth. And We were going kind of at an awkward time on a Sunday. And so I kind of asked, you know, why are we going at this strange time on a Sunday? And and the person who was driving the car said, well, it's because the children and youth that we're going to be meeting, you know, they work Monday through Saturday from sunrise to sunset. And so we choose Sunday 
at this time when we're going to be there because then Sunday morning they're probably sleeping. And so uh, in the late afternoon, that's where they're ready for us to go and be there and give that workshop. And I remember meeting those children, maybe children maybe as young as eight or nine years old, who had been working in the fields all day. And here were people who, inspired by the gospel, inspired by liberation theology, inspired by Rigoberta Menchu and the URNG Maiz Party, were going great lengths to care for each of those children, but also to show each of those children that there's a way through political and economic organization to overcome uh, this pattern of child labor. Uh, it was it was shocking and very powerful, and I won't forget the faces of the children that I saw. And then a story that I shared before, but can go into a little bit more, which is that it was just a few years ago when I was in Honduras, I went to visit a mine at this mine, we interviewed some of the people who had worked in the mine. And there was one miner who said, I need to get the paperwork from my house. Uh, I have something that I want to show you. And so he came back to the the plaza of the town with his these papers. And I saw that it was a medical report, a, a blood test, and that his blood had cyanide, mercury, and lead in it. And when I saw this, I nearly started to break down. I just thought of how unjust this was towards this person, this miner, who was given a promise by this company that he would be able to work, that this would bring economic development to this community, that it would be transformative for this community in a very positive way. But really, all that happened in the end was uh, the workers in the mine got sick, the water was polluted, and all of the wealth that that mine produced was sent north, for the most part, to the United States and to Canada. So how is the church called to liberate the poor, to bring good news to the poor? These children who may not have a backpack, may not have school supplies, the people who are homeless, people who are children uh, working in the fields of Guatemala or any country for that matter, these people who have been poisoned by companies that have promised them development, how can the church bring these people good news? And how can it be good news that remains? Moreno continues his examination of the good news of Jesus by considering the Incarnation. The good news that God has broken into our world has come near to us. Jesus is God's definitive intervention in human affairs. Like the Good Samaritan, God shows us mercy. God sees from the heavens that we are like sheep without a shepherd. And so God sends Jesus to show us the way to pasture to a new heavens, and a new earth. And then God raises up new shepherds, Christian leaders, disciples of Jesus, who, as he says at the end of Matthew's gospel, ought to, quote, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded them, who ought to remember that Jesus is, quote, with them always to the end of the age, end quote. As Jesus loved his disciples, now Jesus' disciples are called to love others, building a civilization of justice and peace, the civilization that we call the reign of God. 
Given the incarnation of Jesus and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it's now impossible to, quote, find God at the margin of history and the struggle, end quote. Jesus has identified with the poor unto his own death, even death on a cross, and the Holy Spirit is the promise that the reign of God would outlive Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. We can look further into Jesus' life according to the Gospels to see just how much Jesus was one with the poor, with the nobodies of history. For the majority of his life, what we call the hidden years between St. Luke's infancy narratives and the start of Jesus' public ministry at the age of 30, Jesus was, quote, just another within the reality of his town. Only after he's been imbued with the way of being of his town does he go out moved by the Spirit to openly accomplish his messianic activity. Before Jesus began speaking, he listened. Before Jesus showed the supernatural power of his divinity, he lived the ordinary life of humanity. He was born in a stable, not a palace. He was a child refugee, not a Roman citizen. He was a carpenter, not a prince. In all these ways and more, Jesus shows his partiality towards the poor. Instead of the reign of God belonging to King Herod, to the high priest, to Caesar, to Pilate, it belongs to the poor. Many Jews would have been awaiting the restoration of Israel to independence from the Romans, but Jesus' politics are different. He wants his message of revolutionary love, not to be affiliated with a particular regime in history, but rather to extend to the whole earth in one common body, the church. The reign is for Gentiles and Jews, for women and men, for the enslaved and the free. These unequal distinctions coming undone, every mountain made low and every valley filled in. Moreno cites Psalm 72 verse 4 to add another piece of evidence to his claim that God takes the side of the poor. Quote, May God defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. End quote. In this judicial metaphor, God is, quote, not so much the judge who gives a sentence, but a litigator who assumes in the tribunal the defense of the poor and oppressed and accuses the rich oppressor. But the rich do not like the accusation of God. They do not like religion when it means they have to give up their wealthy privileges. They prefer a religion that's quiet about their wealth or that reinforces it by asserting that it's God's will or it's human nature for some to be rich and others to be poor, for some to be owners and others to be employees, for some to be landlords, others to be tenants. Just as Thomas Jefferson removed supernatural phenomena from the Bible to fit his deist religion, the rich removed denunciations of wealth from their Bible to fit their political economy. Or else they spiritualized the terms rich and poor as if Christianity were about bodiless souls, as if God had never taken on human flesh. For rich and poor to be evangelized, to convert to God, quote, is to convert to the poor in their cause. What you do for one of these, you do to me, end quote. That means rich people selling their second home so the homeless can have one. That means rich people giving up power in their businesses so that workers can share it. That means poor people lifting each other up as a community instead of caving into the hyper-individualism that destroys the potential of the people's power. You cannot serve 
both God and money. You cannot say you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, and deny the poor an economy that gives food, drink, health care, clothing, housing to everyone. At the sunset of our lives, we will be judged on what we've done for the poor, who are Christ, according to Christ himself. The poverty of solidarity, that is, the poverty of the privileged who join the cause of the poor for the liberation of all, is risky business. Consider St. Oscar Romero, a man who had the privilege of being an archbishop, but who also used to say that he didn't want security as long as security isn't given to his flock. Like the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, Romero laid down his life for his sheep. He took a bullet for siding with the poor, for denouncing the massacres of the Salvadoran military, for pleading for arms to stop flowing from the United States into El Salvador arms that would be used by Salvadorans to kill each other. Having considered Jesus' words and deeds, Moreno concludes that words and deeds form the constitution of evangelization, and between these two, there is a priority on deeds. That's why in the parable of the two sons, in which one son says he will work but does not work, and the other says he will not work but does work, the one who ultimately does the work is deemed better. You will know a tree by its fruits. You'll know a person by their actions. Jesus speaks of God's mercy. Then he pardons the adulterous woman and the rich tax collector Zacchaeus. Jesus preaches woe to the rich. Then he turns over the tables of the money changers in the temple. Jesus preaches blessing to the poor. Then he multiplies loaves and fishes so that the starving masses have enough to eat. Words are sometimes necessary to illuminate the meaning of actions, but words alone are insufficient. We are seeing this problem now with President Biden. He promised a certain amount of COVID-19 relief funds, but he gave less. He said he could beat COVID-19, but he presided over two surges of cases and deaths that came from the Delta and Omicron variants. He said he would cancel student loan debt, but he has not. And we know I could go on and on. Do not put your trust in demagogues, but look to Jesus and those who follow Jesus, quote, by transforming reality so that the other can live the life that corresponds to them as a human person and a child of God. End quote. I want to share a bit more on this topic of evangelization from my life. I undoubtedly had a big conversion on the meaning of evangelization. For some parts of my time in high school and college, I very much so thought of evangelization in terms of converting people to Christianity, to Catholicism, to get people to have the same creed, essentially, that I have. And that led to... (laughs) Many different encounters with different people. I'm not sure how successful I was in attempting to convert people to the Catholic faith. Probably not very successful at all. But as I came to know liberation theology more and more throughout my time in college and then later in the Society of Jesus, I have come to see evangelization in the way that Moreno describes here. That a part of evangelization may be a creed, but it's not The most important part, just as love is greater than faith and hope, 
so too, I think, the liberation of the poor, bringing glad tidings to the poor, is more evangelical than getting someone to agree with the same creed that I happen to have. That has been a change, and I think a very good one, because when one has that change, one begins to see interactions with people who may not share the same creed as I do or we do, but you see interactions with other people as an opportunity to collaborate together for what is the most important thing, which is love, and love's expression in justice, in equality, in peace. And that's a seismic shift. Uh, and I think one that Pope Francis has been promoting as well in his encounters with people of different, pl- uh, different faiths, uh, his encounters with atheists, he stresses this point and he addresses himself to all people of goodwill and uh, would that we follow him on that. There's also been a transformation that I want to share regarding my teaching. Because uh, when I first arrived at uh, Xavier, I think a lot of professors, what they do when they become a professor, they repeat what they had seen from previous professors. So you teach philosophy, you think, well, who was the professor I liked most uh, who was teaching theology? Well, let me model model my class after uh, her class or his class, whatever it may be. So I did that. And I was teaching philosophy and film, and I found that, well, why am I only teaching uh, certain kinds of philosophers, mostly white European and American men? Why is it that the films that we're watching in this class, though they may have diverse topics, the directors uh, seem to be generally white men and in some cases white women? And in intentionally reflecting on the diversity and inclusion and equity component of my class, uh, I decided to make a shift in years two and three, which actually was, <laughs> it, it kind of relieved me that I made this shift too, because all of us, we have sometimes this cognitive dissonance, right? We, we may stand for something, but then in practice, we may not be following what we stand for. And I feel like I made a shift that was going to make my ideals and my philosophy and theology more in communion with my uh, pedagogy and the content as well of my pedagogy. So I shifted to, uh, in that philosophy and film class, to teaching five films, one from each of the continents, uh, sorry, Australia and Antarctica and also to teach philosophers from various continents. And I think that this has been incredible. I, I, I have students who will write feedback saying, I did not think that I was going to be represented in any way in this philosophy class in my identity. Or they might say, you know, I've, I've had philosophy classes before, English or humanities classes before, and uh, the things that we studied in this class, it's a perspective that I have never heard before. And in that class, so we might read Fanon, uh, we might read Mao, uh, we might read Lenin, we might read different uh, labor philosophers from the United States and from Latin America as well, uh, Marta Harnaker. And so in making this shift, I feel like it is more evangelical in the way that we are discussing bringing good news to the poor and good news that lasts. The transformation of reality requires a diagnosis of reality. We cannot figure out how to get from point A, the present, to point B, utopia, the fullness of the reign of God, if we don't have any idea about the contours of our historical moment. That's why Moreno, 
lays out the characteristics of the contemporary world to better discern its lights and shadows, its opportunities, and its threats. And in reading these, it's curious how 30, 40 years have gone by and many of the things that he's describing are still with us today. He begins with, quote, the globalization of history. A decision is made in the Kremlin or in the White House, and thousands die or suffer in Afghanistan, Central America, Angola, or the Middle East. A country adopts the policy of the IMF, and thousands become unemployed, and many more suffer hunger, end quote. Today, we see that the world is one big system. We see it in supply chain issues, in the expansion of NATO, in the war between Russia and Ukraine. We see how the presidential victory of Trump inspired other far-right leaders around the world to emerge or to gain ground. We see how national laws about the definition of refugee affect the international flow of migrants. We see viruses crossing borders. Now, the world is much less provincial than before, and foreign policy has therefore taken on special interest. Another marker of our contemporary reality is the advancement of science and technology. Innovations have raised the standard of living for many, but this positive change has its costs. I think of Elon Musk's response to a tweet claiming that the U.S. organized a coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia so that he could mine for lithium there. Quote, we will coup whoever we want, deal with it, end quote. It's become all the more clear to us that the transnational tech enterprises have more sway over our lives than the political leaders we elect. As Marx and Engels rightfully observed, the economic base sets the limits for the political and cultural superstructure. Less so now than when Moreno was writing, countries rise up against crown only to bow down shortly thereafter before coin. Many nations in Africa, like Burkina Faso and Guinea, liberated themselves from French rule, but then submitted to the influence of AFRICOM, the arm of the U.S. military in Africa. And we must ask the question, why does the United States have a military presence in Africa? You thought that was going to be a rhetorical question, but no, I, I think there is an answer. Uh, <laughs> The answer is to secure its interests, namely national security, strangely occurring abroad, and natural, natural resources. In 2021, this is astounding, the United States imported 18,000 barrels of crude oil a day from Algeria, 32,000 from Angola, 90,000 from Libya, 108,000 from Nigeria, and 51,000 from Ghana, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. And now, given the U.S. role in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, I'd imagine these numbers will only grow given that in the same year, the U.S. imported 199,000 barrels a day from Russia. The United States has turned many of the newly independent African nations into mere cogs in its massive machine. Lastly, Moreno speaks of the migrant and refugee crisis, condemning the lack of solidarity from the global north. Quote, a society fearful of seeing its standard of living reduced because it has to share its goods and resources, end quote. A UN refugee agency report from 2021 states that one in every 95 people on earth has fled their home as a result of conflict or persecution. The plurality of refugees comes from Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar. 
Turkey, by far, has become the country that hosts the most refugees, 30.7 million in all. And there's no doubt that the United States has played an aggravating role in many of these cases. The U.S. stars Venezuela, then blames its refugee crisis on Chavez and Maduro. The U.S. invades Afghanistan. The U.S. invades Afghanistan, starves it, pollutes its water, then hands the nation over to the Taliban. The U.S. bombs Syria in at least 17,000 locations to date per AP, then sends in troops on the ground, claims to withdraw them, doesn't withdraw them, then carries out a commando raid to kill an ISIS leader. It's wild and horrifying to think about the fact that the United States has perpetuated war in almost all the present crises around the world. Would that the U.S. listen to the words of St. Oscar Romero, who asked the U.S. to discontinue the flow of weapons into his country, weapons that would be used for brother to fight against brother, sister to fight against sister, Salvadorans to kill other Salvadorans. As Amisa Serre put it, if the United States is so civilized, then why is it so brutal to the international poor and its own poor? Why does it manufacture weapons? Why does it carry out airstrikes without declarations of war, airstrikes that on occasion kill civilians? Why is it the instigator of so many conflicts? It is difficult to find the good news amidst the sobering assessment of our current context, but I am convinced that God has raised up and that God is raising up prophets who will denounce the injustices Moreno and I have outlined and will show us a way to a human society free from every chain. I am also convinced that we can be these prophets by giving our lives over to God, which, as Moreno says, is the same as giving one's life over to the cause of the poor. In the Sushipe prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola, he says, quote, Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all I have and possess, end quote. May we say the same of the oppressed. May we give all our liberty, our memory, our understanding, our, our entire will over to their struggle. In this spirit, Moreno writes, quote, It's the totality of our existence that needs to evangelize, to embody an always greater commitment and identification with the poor, end quote. But this commitment cannot be merely sentimental. Per Ignatius's prayer, we must use our understanding. Our mercy should not be uncritical, but informed by the social sciences that indicate the way that we can transform systems from injustice to justice. It is not enough to feel compassion. We must also act and act smart. The marginalized will define the aims and actions of today's evangelization. Moreno writes, quote, The first evangelization took place in the shade of a sword, but the new evangelization should come from the very heart of marginalized cultures in absolute respect for their dignity and freedom, end quote. The first evangelization was not evangelization in the sense we've been discussing now. How can the Spanish and Portuguese conquest of the indigenous peoples of Latin America be considered good news for the vanquished? How can the slave trade, which brought approximately 4 million Africans to Latin America, be thought of as a liberation for the captive? And how can the neo-colonization of Latin America by the United States, its allies, and its transnational corporations be dubbed Christian? Though many who carried out these unjust processes called themselves followers of Christ, they were so in name only. 
they decked the retablos of Europe and Latin America with gold stolen from native peoples. They extract precious metals from Mother Earth, poison water and air, and ship the wealth to the north. We live in an age of globalized capital. The production of commodities spans oceans and continents. There are many unjust aspects of this arrangement, but Moreno encourages us to think of its opportunities. Due to the modern means of communication, we can stay abreast of struggles for liberation occurring around the world. I think of Radio Progreso. I listen to Radio Progreso in the morning, and I am hearing precisely what the Honduran poor are fighting for. It's amazing. We can organize online. We can see that we're not alone in fighting for justice. There are many reasons why people hate Twitter, <laughs> but for me at least, there are also huge benefits. I hear takes I'd otherwise never hear. I make connections with Christians I'd otherwise never meet. I can follow a wide array of folks across the political spectrum to have a greater sense of the spirit of the age and the different ways people are interacting with the news. And I can find links to stories about countries the mainstream Western media ignores. It's a wonderful tool if we use it to bring good news to the poor. The martyrs of El Salvador, Ida, Dorothy, Mara, Jean, Oscar, Rutilio, have been good news to the poor too. Moreno recounts an interaction with an elderly Salvadoran woman at a refugee camp during a celebration of the memory of these martyrs. She told him, quote, As long as there are people who, like them, leave everything to come to live, suffer, and fight with us, and to die like us and for us, we will have hope, because we know that the God of life has not abandoned us. It's tragic but also inspiring that Moreno himself, the writer of this chapter, would become one of these martyrs about a year after he wrote this text. He knew the cost of giving everything to the poor, and he chose the path of liberation nonetheless. Moreno concludes his chapter with a warning to religious communities like the Society of Jesus, of which he was a member and of which I'm a member. He writes, quote, But what is important for the church, for our religious communities, to be highly regarded and supported by the rich of the world or to be a cry of hope, good news to the scorned of the earth? The words of Jesus apply to the church and to us institutionally. If one wants to save their life, they will lose it. But if one loses his life, they will find it. End quote. And he's absolutely right. The church and the society of Jesus should perpetually pose to ourselves the question, to whom are we listening? Who has our ear? With whom are we spending time? Which side are we on? Is our witness to the poor and humble Christ evident to ourselves and to the world? Whom am I reluctant to criticize? Whom am I eager to praise? Am I evangelizing? That is, am I a person who brings glad tidings to the poor? May we make our own the prayer of St. Oscar Romero. God, may I not worry about offending anyone but you. Thanks for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Our next one will draw from Victor Cordina's Mysterium Liberationis chapter on the sacraments. I'm very excited for that one. Don't miss it. Uh, but for now, let's end with a prayer invoking the intercession of St. Oscar Romero. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God of power and mercy, who have granted to Bishop Oscar Romero to give his life while celebrating the Eucharist in a supreme act of love for you, grant us, we ask you, that as you gave him the grace to imitate Christ's suffering by his death, may we, by following in your martyr's footsteps, gain eternal life through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.